Part Three, Chapter Two of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Three, Chapter Two. Breakfast was difficult for Kurt. The feeling of lazy well-being that had lulled him a few hours before was gone. He was self-conscious seeing himself only as having fallen neatly into Tony's trap. He fussed about the kettle and toast, avoiding Tony's eyes. When at last they sat opposite each other at the yellow table, he forced himself to look Tony squarely in the face. He saw there what he had feared to see, a gentle derision. "'I know you're laughing at me,' he said sulkily. Tony laughed in earnest. "'Oh, Kurt, how funny you good people are!' One little slip and you're all upset. One little slip's all that's needed, isn't it? You'd have me think so, anyway. I've proven to you now, I suppose, by last night, that my, my ideal, as you call it, was just a sorry illusion. You liked it, didn't you? Tony countered. Yes, I liked it, which weakens my case the more. He waited seriously for Tony's reply. Then what more can you ask? The moment's enough. Look, the sun on this yellow table in these blue cups, the steam rising through it. It's rather nice, a moment I may remember, unexpectedly, twenty years from now. A moment that may come floating up out of unconsciousness, like a wooden rosary from a drowned man's hand. You see, the whole problem of life is to get enough moments crowded into it, so the spaces between won't be so deadly. But the moments, if they came too close, They'd soon be as common and as dull as the spaces between them, wouldn't they? Tony said nothing for a moment. Then he countered with a question. What would Derry think about this, or David? Derry wouldn't mind, I'm afraid. He would think he had made a conquest and be pleased as punch. David would mind terribly. You're sure David would? Well, he might at that. Why do you say that? Because I know you're David. At least I think I do. You you know him? Kurt was aghast. He's from Philadelphia. Yes, yes he is. And does he, you might not know this, does he ever mention a friend named Broskin, Ozzy Broskin? Oh, Ozzy, yes, Ozzy is his guardian. Tony looked at him for a moment in amused surprise, and then threw back his head and shouted with laughter. His guardian? Kurt, puzzled steeled himself for some new sally. Kurt Gray, how can you be so goddamned innocent? What did he mean? Why, say, Ozzy Broskin is notorious. He's an American Oscar Wilde, belated and much less clever, but the same type, too heavy, too soft, too old. He's got a place in Philadelphia that is like nothing else on earth. I went there to a party once when I was playing at Schubert's, and what a party! It was there I met your David." Yes? Kurt's breath seemed constricted. Tony did not, or pretended not to, notice his extreme agitation. He has an enormous studio. Why a studio, I don't know. He certainly doesn't do anything. Hung in a sort of saffron-yellow Venetian velvet. No furniture but divans and cushions and low tables. So many cushions you could almost walk on them. You don't walk, really. You crawl. It's a sort of glorified mattress. I came after the show and there was a room full of the boys, lying about in heaps. 
Some were in evening clothes, some quite arty, and a good many in the most elegant gowns. A black boy, dressed in a gold turban and sandals, passed cigarettes and served champagne. Somebody played somewhere, it got more and more amorous, and there were diversions. Broskin had got from somewhere two kid acrobats, contortionists really, japs, and he had used their contortioning to his own ends. He brought them out dusted with lavender powder, and they gave a performance that was nobody's business. And, and David was there. Oh, very much there. He was Ozzy's special prize at the time, so he was in high regard. Kurt, what's the matter? Kurt had risen and walked to the door. Tony rose to follow him. You're white as a ghost. Nothing, nothing, Kurt murmured. I, I'll walk a bit. And opening the door, he went out. He drew his hands across his eyes at the sudden brightness of the morning sun, stumbled over the cobblestones to the path leading up the hill behind the town. His mind was a torrent of confusion. Chloe was right then. He'd been most awfully duped. David, Derry, Chloe, Tony, David's eyes, Tony's curling lips, Derry's easy enthusiasms, Chloe's pain, always Chloe's pain. He could not understand. And what was become then of this love he had plighted with David that last night in New York, that fine, high ideal? He saw again David's eyes, and his faith came back to him, and then it was all effaced by Chloe's scrawling handwriting and Tony's so certain phrases refuting it. The gravel rolled and crunched beneath his feet, and the brightness of the sky and the far-gleaming sea seemed gross impertinences. He flung himself at last into the grass, and sobbed with vexation and his own confusion. David's eyes, David's eyes, David's eyes, candid and sure and kind and disturbing. There must be some beauty in all this crassness to cling to. He stopped crying as suddenly as he had begun, cursed himself for a fool, and started down the hill again. At the foot of the path he saw Tony, shading his eyes, searching for him. They waved almost simultaneously, and both broke into a run. When they met by an open stable door, acrid with the smell of goats and burrows, Tony seized him by both arms. I'm sorry, gosh, I'm sorry, Kurt. I was jealous of your David, that's all. He's probably a good sort, away from Ozzy. And for that he's probably not to be blamed. All of us, except maybe you, have things we're not happy about and don't talk about. Except maybe you, you mean, queried Kurt, smiling at him. Go ahead, I deserve it. Why do I make acquaintances everywhere I go, and so few real friends? They fell into step, walking back towards the house. I don't think you really want to know, do you? Probably I'll be offended, and won't believe you. But tell me anyway, I've told you enough, Kurt. You give yourself away too freely, that's all. Ten minutes with you, and they know everything about you, except this one thing. And I wonder sometimes how you manage to accept that. You certainly skirted the edge yesterday at the Rubens. When Mrs. Rubin waxed sociological, you remember. I know, I was furious. It was so obvious they liked you better than me, I talked foolishly. Well, try my prescription. I've taken the first dose of yours, and it wasn't bad. And taking Tony's arm, he continued beside him down the hill. 
Once more between them there was the perfect harmony that comes into being sometimes between old friends, a harmony so finely attuned that Kurt anticipated Tony's sudden veer in conversation by the subtle telepathy all friends know. You see, Kurt, in all this you've been fortunate, and I've been unfortunate. You've liked, I think, the right people, and so far they've not disappointed you. But they have me so many times, and I've rushed to the far extreme. You don't know what some of these creatures are, that's all, so you can't understand my bitterness. They turned once more into their own street. Oh, Lord, sighed Kurt. What's the matter? The Rubens are at it again, swinging on our garden gate. They stood there, apparently in heated conversation. Kurt waved and shouted, Hello. Mrs. Reuben turned and waved, though somewhat dubiously. Reuben turned heavily and stalked off across the garden and out of sight. The arches of Tony's eyebrows went suddenly gothic. Something's up. Yes, something's always up with those two. They used to keep me awake nights screaming at each other. Watch your step, Tony, for heaven's sake. When they opened the blue door that led into the garden, they found Mrs. Reuben sitting on the steps of the low terrace, moodily poking with a twig at a snail which had clung to the damp coping beside her. She was young, twenty-six perhaps, fully twenty years younger than her husband, small and dark, with a thin face, thin lips and nose, and enormous black eyes, half concealed behind heavy-rimmed glasses. Kurt disliked her, had from the first. She always reminded him of a rat pushing its way into places from which one tried to exclude it. She had been a social worker of some sort in New York, had met Reuben there and married him. Why, Kurt could never conceive, for they were glaringly unsuited to each other in age and in temperament. Reuben, gruff, selfish, crude, grossly conceited, yet possessing a real talent for paint. Georgia, moody, introspective, prying, as selfish as her husband, and utterly inefficient as cook or housekeeper, constantly at loose ends with her husband's personality, and yet passionately proud of his achievements, and reveling, as a gourmand might, in a choice store of food, in his celebrated friends. We were up at the Harris's last night, and Frank was telling Leo, or, we're half expecting Sherwood Anderson down next week from Paris, or, Norman Douglas is up at Mentone again, and we may drive down to see him one of these days. These were typical of her most frequent conversational overtures. This morning she was gloomily silent. Cheerio, fair lady, how's tricks? said Tony. Oh, shut up, you make me sick. All you men make me sick, especially if you're artists. Well, that lets us out at least, put in Kurt. It doesn't let you out. You're artistic, and that's worse. My God, I thought when I was in Henry Street that I ran up against queer people. But this has me beat. Her rage seemed too great to empty itself exclusively upon its real object, her husband, and spilled over into these two as well. Somebody's done wrong by our Nell, Tony contributed. Because I can't cook a steak the way he likes it, and because I won't wash out his goddamn brushes three times a day, he calls me a slut and nearly has a stroke. He will some day. Oh, snap out of it, Georgia. Your lot's not so bad. No? Her voice was brittle with vindictiveness. She rose and started to the upper house, her face tense with emotion. Then, half turning, she threw out. Some of us can have wives to our taste, apparently, and disappeared through the door. Kurt and Tony stared at each other, amazed. 
That dirty wench, exclaimed Tony. What's she driving at? asked Kurt. It's clear enough what she's driving at, at you and me. She's been prying, apparently. I think we're going to move. Oh, she couldn't. How could she? Anyway, it's Reuben she's sore at. When she gets over that, she'll forget this other, too. Don't you think it, Kurt. She's a vindictive, mean little rat. Kurt approved the epithet. And she's out to do me no good. And if in the doing she slashes you a bit, it's all right with her. I know these people. They praise themselves for being broad-minded, but they're really intolerant as hell, and they can make us damned uncomfortable. Let's not even give them the chance. That afternoon they walked by the valley road to St. Paul, growing up out of the green valley in a surprising ridge of compact stone. Smaller than Severn, its charm was different. The old Roman wall was damaged so little that they found they could walk almost the whole circuit of the town on its crumbling top. The one long street that ran through the town along the spine of the hill was flanked closely on either side by the heavy stone facades of old houses, with grated windows and enormous studded doors, forbidding and secret. Here and there, however, one of them would stand open, giving a glimpse through the long tiled hallways to open arches, looking westward over the steeply dropping hillside, with the vivid tops of orange trees and small walled gardens a picture of freshly drawn water from the central fountain, or the crab-like back of some old woman scrubbing a doorstep, as if to show that life for her was frugal, clean, and sufficient. Tony was frankly excited at these few accidental glimpses of an intimate and different world. "'Who'd ever think it?' he exclaimed, seizing Kurt's arm. "'It's here where we should live, not among those splotchers and dabblers in Severn. It's like us, at least it's like you, Kurt.' hiding your real and important life behind a wall as noncommittal as this. Kurt smiled. You're talking exactly as I talked the other night, Tony. You're not being very consistent or logical. Logical? Of course I'm not logical. Who could be with all this about you? He swept his free hand in an inclusive gesture. I'm not saying you were wrong, all wrong. It's things like this damned Reuben nastiness that make your ideas seem right, really. He stopped and planted his back against a convenient wall. They think we're nasty, but it's they always who are nasty. Nasty and sneaking and suspicious, and even jealous. That's it, she's jealous. It's the idea of Reuben, bull-necked old Reuben, not really satisfying her, and two young men she'd like to have falling over themselves, to seduce her, not caring a damn about her. Kurt was surprised at the depth of Tony's feeling on the subject. He would have expected him to be scornful, perhaps, humorously and lightly malicious, but this fragile head pressed back against the old wall, this tense throat, these nervous hands, displayed a new and unfamiliar seriousness. "'Come along,' said Kurt, tugging at his jacket. "'Come along.' They turned a slight bend in the street and came upon the square, which was really little more than an angular widening of the street to accommodate a low circular fountain and beyond it a stone arcade, beneath which, sunken slightly below the level of the street, was a series of long troughs, the village laundry. At the fountain, the street divided into a thin V, continuing on the right up a gradual rise of the hill to the heavy Romanesque church at its summit, and on the left, descending slightly between rows of the same solid houses. They took the left fork, and before they had passed the fountain, Tony stopped. This is it 
he said, this is what? This is where we're moving to. There was, Kurt then observed, beside the tall carved doors that provided the only relief in the wall outside the fountain, a small sign, apartment to rent. Don't you feel that it's right? It is, I know it is. And before Kurt could reply, he had lifted the iron knocker and sent its dull thunder echoing through the house. Tony's premonition was right. That night they sat reviewing their find, its square dark living room with red-tiled floor, great oaken cupboard and hooded fireplace, the bedrooms, high-ceilinged and looking down an olive-grown hillside and across a valley, its small kitchen with charcoal oven and copper kettles, its garden overlooking the same hillside and valley in three terraces, with pots of angular flaming geraniums and orange trees, gold-globed with fruit. And most of all, it's Stephen Dedalus, the small, mongrel puppy with floppy ears and sad eyes, that, whining at the door during their inspection, had so won them that Tony had at once adopted it and christened it for Joyce's strange hero. They were deep in their planning when Reuben came in with no more warning than a surly grunt. His face was red, and his peacock-green tie, which he always affected on his trips to Nice or Cannes, was awry. He was drunk. See here, fellows. His voice was thick, and he rubbed his knuckles against his coarse, almost negroid hair. I'm sorry, but I gotta use this room, and I guess Georgia thinks she doesn't want anyone up at the house any more. This to Tony. He stared with a sort of ox-like and smoldering malice at Tony's bright head. Kurt started to speak, but a look, a something passing like a spark from Tony's mind to his own, made him stop. I'm sorry. Reuben began again, a little disappointed that his victims did not seem more perturbed. But this time Tony interrupted airily. Oh, don't feel badly about it, Reuben. It's really quite a coincidence. You see, Gray and I just rented a place this afternoon up the valley, and we were just wondering how we would break the news. Reuben was too drunk to conceal his disgruntled surprise. But, but your rent's not up yet, and— Oh, that's all right, retorted Tony. We won't ask you for a refund. We're going out tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Oh, Reuben grunted, rubbed his chin, and, turning unsteadily, went out. Tony rose and flung the door completely open. To air the place out, he explained. Kurt continued to stroke the soft ears of Stephen, who sprawled by the low chair. Well, I was right, wasn't I? asked Tony, turning back into the room. Let's take a walk. Stephen needs the air, I'm sure, and God knows I do. End of Part 3, Chapter 2